0: Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is July 28th, 2022, and I am so pleased and honored to be with today uh, my colleague from far away in Australia, Lana Tatur. And Lana, we have featured once previously for the foundation, we did a a joint event, a congressional briefing series with the Middle East Institute and Lana was on one of our panels, and was amazing and I've been wanting to have her back Um, and I'll tell you why I'm having her back in a second. First, I wanna do her bio very quickly. Uh, Housekeeping, Lana is an assistant professor in global development at the School of Social Science, University of New South Wales, Australia. She's on a 14 hour time difference. So she got up this morning first thing and is doing it tomorrow her time, which is awesome. Uh, Lana was the 2019-2020 Ibrahim Abulogad postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Palestine Studies at Columbia University. And she is currently completing a book provisionally titled Ambivalent Resistance, Palestinians in Israel and the Liberal Politics of Settler Colonialism and Human Rights. And you can follow Lana and her work on Twitter, at Lana underscore Tatour, T-A-T-O-U-R. And you can follow our work on academic journals. I'll have a link along with the podcast to that. And I'll also post links to the articles that we're going to be mentioning today and other awesome stuff. So you should check back for that. So Lana, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure being back.
0: So as I said, I've been wanting to have you back. And then you published a piece recently that made me think, okay, I wanna have you back now. So by way of introduction, the immediate catalyst here for this conversation is a decision taken by the Israeli Supreme Court about, I don't know, a week ago now, Um, which in effect empowers the Israeli government to revoke the citizenship of its own citizens in cases where the state decides the person in question is guilty of, quote, a breach of loyalty against the state. And we're going to dig into this. So Lana published a very powerful article explaining and analyzing the implications of this decision entitled Israel can now strip away 48 Palestinian citizenship very direct title. Um, That piece follows other important analyses she has published, including a 2020 article in Arab Studies Journal entitled Citizenship as Domination, Settler Colonialism and the Making of Palestinian Citizenship in Israel, and also a 2020, or that was 2019, and a 2020 article in Asafir al-Arabi entitled Palestinians in Israel and the Illusion and the illusory promise of inclusive citizenship. So there'll be links to those. So that's the context. So Lena, can you first tell our listeners viewers about that recent ruling of the sup- Israeli Supreme Court? What, what was this case about and how did it end up in the Supreme Court?
1: Uh, thank you, Laura, and thank you for having me. I think, um, as you mentioned, and when we when we spoke, it's it's a topic that hasn't been receiving Uh, enough attention and the ramifications uh, are really significant and they will be seen in the near and far future. Um, And it's important to start talking uh, about this case and what it could mean uh, for those who really care about uh, uh, Palestinian um, justice and human rights. So the case of the Israeli Supreme Court is a case um, of a Palestinian, Alaa Zayud, who in October 2015, rammed his car um, into a bus station and stabbed three Israelis. Uh, He was convicted, um, and a year after his conviction in 2017, he received a notification by the Minister of Interior, who according to the citizenship law has the power To withdraw citizenship, uh, that his citizenship, uh, uh, that he has the intent of revoking his citizenship. The administrative court in Haifa approved this decision. Alaa Zayud appealed uh, uh, the decision. And to cut a long story short, it ended up with the Supreme Court who released their uh, decision about a week ago. Now, the decision of the Supreme Court. Um, allows, according to the citizenship law, to strip person, in this case, definitely it's targeted towards Palestinians, who are accused of breach of loyalty. And the Minister of Interior can, they, they determine that it is constitutional, Um, to revoke the citizenship, even if that person will remain stateless after the revocation of the citizenship, arguing that then the state will have to remedy the situation of uh, statelessness, either by awarding a permanent residence, and we can talk about that later, or any other status. This is an interesting part. So they giving giving the state maneuvering space uh, um, in that sense. So this is in a nutshell, um, the decision, it is based on the citizenship law. It is based on um, an article in the citizenship law that allows the Minister of Interior in extreme cases, obviously, to withdraw uh, uh, initially extreme cases, to withdraw the citizenship of persons accused of breach of loyalty.
0: So I want to unpack um, some of the some of the things that you just said. So first of all, breach of loyalty is a really interesting phrase. I mean that 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 feels very general. Um, actually, before we talk about breach of loyalty, you mentioned the the nationality law. I want to talk about the nation state law, which is you know. The, I saw this report and I thought this flows in my mind inevitably from the nation state law and how the nation state law defines Israeli identity and nationality. Can you talk about how it does or doesn't connect?
1: Absolutely. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think that more connects to. Uh, um, the culture of Israeli politics in recent years, because the the nation state law, which determines that the Jewish people have the exclusive right uh, um, uh, um, to the land of Israel, as it determines, um, is it, not new. Right? It enshrines a reality that exists that has been existing since one thousand, nine hundred and forty-eight i think what is new about this law is that it reveals the deep anxiety that exists in the israeli state especially in recent years it has been going more uh uh, extreme right-wing and more fascist uh with palestinians and especially 48 palestinians what is known as palestinian citizens of israel um and their claims of being indigenous and native to the land and therefore entitled for a particular set of rights within uh, uh, the state. So the law comes to remind Palestinians of their place in the Israeli state. It comes to remind the world and remind Palestinians and remind Israelis that this is uh, um, the exclusive state of the Jewish people, the Jewish people, that Jews, whether they are in Israel or outside of Israel has supreme rights and and, uh, uh, a superior access uh, to land um, and other political uh, rights in the Israeli uh, state. And this decision is a continuation of that anxiety and of the, of the um, enshrining the Jewishness of the state and reminding Palestinians who holds the power to determine what and which kind of status they will enjoy in Israel as a Jewish state. And that is that their presence in uh, the Israeli state, but more importantly, in their homeland is conditional because the law says this is not your homeland. This is not your state. This is the state and homeland of the Jewish people. So this is a direct continuation of that conditionality.
0: Thank you, that, that's actually very clear. And I wanna come back to a couple of things you said, but first, so again, breach of loyalty, really weird. That, that, that rings very odd for, for people raised, I think, in a democracy. Can you talk about what that means under this law? Who decides what is or isn't a breach of loyalty? And, and what recourse is there if you're accused of a breach of loyalty? And if I can also add, and, and if you can address this, I mean, someone might look at this and say, well, fine, this could be applied against a Jewish citizen as well. Why is it implausible when people look at this case, when you look at this recent ruling? Why is it so clear that this really is aimed at Palestinians, not at Jewish citizens of Israel?
1: That's really a good question. So I want to say that under the citizenship law from 1952, there is no definition of what breach of loyalty is. There is only uh, an inclusion of the phrase breach of loyalty. So that means that breach of loyalty can be uh, interpreted in different ways. At the moment, and under the ruling of the uh, Israeli Supreme Court, breach of loyalty is defined, and I'm quoting directly from the decision of the Supreme Court, includes act of terrorism, an act of treason or serious espionage, acquisition of citizenship uh, um, in or hostile citizenship, uh, sorry, acquisition of citizenship in a hostile state or hostile territory. Uh, At the moment, the ways in which uh, a breach of loyalty is being defined in Israel. It is, and I'm saying at the moment, and again, we can talk about it later, is primarily in line with the counterterrorism law that was uh, um, legislated, I think, in 2016, so a few years ago. Um, And this is really significant uh, 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 for Palestinians in Israel, for Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship, because this law is increasingly being applied in legal cases and indictments against Palestinians. But at the moment, technically, this is the ways in which breach of loyalty, this uh, absolutely right, this vague phrase, and this is what is so scary about it, that it's so vague and Could be always changed. Uh, The interpretation can always be modified according to the political, geopolitical conditions and according to the political considerations and needs of the Israeli state. And this is is what is so terrifying uh, with this decision, which really opens the gate um, for uh, um, the denaturalization and significant of Palestinian citizens in significant
0: ways. So I'm thinking as I'm listening to you of a headline I saw today of a Palestinian, um, a 48 Palestinian who has been accused of uh, support for terrorism at her university because in a speech she quoted a line from um, Darwish and um, the local chapter of Intirzu, I think called uh, basically launched, I think it was into it to launch something against her. And she's now being publicly accused of support for terrorism. And this is, you know, a a student. Um, You you sort of see where that goes. I also, I think it's worth mentioning, I pulled up while you were talking the the statement that Adala and ACRI, the two Israeli sort of preeminent um, civil rights organizations put out. And their comments on this was on the question of where it's gonna be used. They said the current quote, the current case indicates that the law is discriminatory and will likely be used exclusively against Palestinians as citizens of Israel.
1: Um, So there's that. So uh, coming back to you. Can I I comment on Adala Akri's statement? I think it's, um, Adala Akri issued the statement and the way they have been arguing uh, or explaining this case is significant, but it's also problematic. So they have been framing this case that what we are seeing is discrimination because the law will be applied uh, uh, exclusively. Let's be honest, not primarily, exclusively on Palestinians. Um, uh, on, and, and they're arguing for discrimination on this ground and they're uh, arguing for disproportionality. Um, I think this is a really problematic line of argument. First of all, because there is no discrimination here. In the sense what we have, discrimination means you have sets of laws and that discriminate between people. Here you have more than discrimination, much more than discrimination. Here you have a state mobilizing its law to target exclusively with an intent to denaturalize native population, native indigenous population, this is more than discriminatory act. This is more than disproportionality. Secondly, in the vein of human rights, the problem is not that it would be applied discriminatory or you know, in discriminatory way or disproportional way. The problem is with the idea that citizenship can be revoked. That principle is a significant principle. We all, many of us immigrate from one place to another. We know what is the significance of the legal status you hold. Uh, There is a reason why citizenship is the superior protection that you can have. If you violate the law, There is a justice system that tries you and you pay the price for whatever offense you have committed, but you have your citizenship. It is a superior right. It is your right to have a right building on errand. What we have here is a violation of this really significant principle that we need to be against it on the most principle level. Certainly when it is applied, uh, um, when this principle is being undermined and targeting an indigenous native population.
0: Yeah. it's, as you were talking, I was thinking about arguments I've had with people about things like administrative detention and collective punishment. The problem isn't simply that they're discriminatory. It isn't like if you used it against everyone, it would be somehow more legal or more moral. These are illegal and immoral in the first place. And they need to be challenged on that, that front. And it isn't about discriminatory. It's about this is part of a, a, a basket of, of tools that are used. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Those are really important points. Um, I, I wanna talk to you about the idea of what the implications are. And I'm gonna quote, I'm gonna quote you at you. So in your, your recent piece you wrote, and I quote, the importance of this decision cannot be overstated. Its implications are grave and will be seen in the near and far future. This decision has created a legal path for revoking the citizenship of 48 Palestinians, also known as Palestinian citizens of Israel, a stepping stone in Israel's efforts to advance the ethnic cleansing and expulsion of Palestinians. So I want you to talk about how this decision's open what you call a legal path. Because some people might say, look, you know, somebody rams their car into someone and they they need extraordinary measures, right? So why, explain where this can lead and why you're so worried about it.
1: I think... When states decide to undermine really principles that should be taken as common sense, like the one we talked about, that citizenship isn't revocable, they start with extreme cases, right? They start with the case of the person uh, who ran his car into a bus station, obviously stripping it completely of the political context of colonization, occupation, that has been going on for decades. But nonetheless, they start with what people may see as extreme cases. Um, and as I said, there is in no condition, not a scenario where revoking citizenship is a legitimate act. This is really important.
0: If I could just weigh and in for people listening, if they're to understand what you're saying, Lena, this is comparable in my mind to folks who want to do away with a woman's right to choose. So they focus on, the most extreme case of what they can say, ah, you know, that the baby was born alive. What they really mean is we don't want women to have a right to choose what they do with their bodies, but they start with an almost farcically extreme case and then build from there.
1: Absolutely, so in this case, what I'm talking about the legal path is, um, what we have here is a precedent. and what we have here is a mobilization of the Counterterrorism Act uh, that I mentioned uh, uh, before. To understand the ramifications, I want to go back to a year ago, the Unity Intifada, the uprising in May 2021. I just finished writing a book chapter together with Adam Tator, uh, full disclosure, my sister, who's a human rights uh, uh, lawyer and activist and was involved in providing legal aid. Uh, to those detained. During the uprising in 48 territory, uh, what is Israel, um, uh, thousands of Palestinians uh, who are citizens of the state were arrested uh, uh, in a span of about three weeks. Now, just uh, at the anniversary of uh, the Unity Intifada, The Office of State Attorney attorney in Israel published a report glorifying the office for the remarkable work that they have done uh, in in dealing with these cases. What we have is 167 Palestinian protesters who are out on the streets uh, uh, resisting settler colonialism and protecting their homes, their cities, their communities, their families being charged with offensive, being charged, being indicted. But what Israel did is attribute terrorist intent and defining these offenses as terrorist acts. So for example, uh, 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 um, Bedouin protesters in the Naqab uh, who toppled uh, light poles on the road have been uh, uh, indicted with a terrorist act, right? Um, and still, there are indictments being made as we speak now. There was one made two days ago against uh, a young um, a young man, young Palestinian uh, man uh, from Acre. But this means that most likely, most of them, if not all of them, most likely, all of them are going to be convicted. Those who will be convicted, then the Minister of Interior, as a deterrent uh, uh, measure, can notify them, like he notified Zayud, of an intent to revoke their citizenship, which then might go to the administrative court or not and reach uh, a Supreme Court. This is the floodgate that this decision is opening. People protesting on the streets can be accused of of terrorism. You are uh, reading Darwish uh, and marking the Nakbe, you can be accused of terrorism. You refuse to accept the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish racial state, you are accused of terrorism you are accused of breach of loyalty. Then breach of loyalty can be stretched, right? Why just define it under the counterterrorism law? We can define it more broadly. Are you a supporter of the BDS movement? That's a breach of loyalty to the Israeli state. And this is where the risk lies. And the problem is that within the current climate of the Israeli state and with the total impunity with which the state is operating and working. What we are going to be seeing is the gradual invocation of this law to strip Palestinians of their citizenship. And this is only step one. And this is how it works. You don't have to put people on buses in a grand you know, spectacle of ethnic cleansing. What you need to do is to constantly create the legal paths that allow uh, uh, for this to happen. And it has been already happening with Palestinian Bedouins in the Naqab. In the recent, recent years, hundreds, Israel revoked the citizenship of hundreds of Palestinian Bedouin citizens in the Naqab under the pretext that they have been registered as citizens, listen to this, by mistake, in, uh, in the 50s or later. So they would go to the Minister of Interior to issue a passport or an ID card, and they would discover that they are no longer citizens. This is how it works. It's a le- another legal path that went under the radar and we have another one here. And this is why I'm really happy to be talking to you about this.
0: So, and I'm very happy you mentioned the Bedouin because I read about that and it's just, it's breathtaking just imagining the, you know, family and and, you were talking generations lives disrupted after the disruption of 48 and disruption 67. And suddenly it's it's actually pretty hard to even um, imagine what that would be like. I want to dig in a little bit on one of the, the technical aspect. Um, in Israeli headlines, the Israeli newspapers, that I saw emphasis on the idea that the, there was a gentle aspect of the Supreme Court ruling and that they said, well, you have to assure that people don't become utterly stateless by giving them some status. I want you to talk about this. Under international law, you can't just render people stateless, right? That's not allowed. And the Supreme Court mitigating this by reclassifying or saying the the state can reclassify citizens as residents. Um, For me, as someone who's worked on Jerusalem issues for years, that raises, I mean, the alarm bells are just definite. And I want you to just talk about this legal distinction that Israel maintains between Palestinian residents and citizens and the way it's been weaponized against Palestinians, particularly in Jerusalem, but I also want you to dig into that word indigene- indigeneity, because fundamentally that's what this distinction is about. Citizens are indigenous have rights, residents are visitors who've been allowed to stay, and I want you to, to sort of connect that because I hadn't even thought about it until you were talking. How much that really does fit into this changing of status? It's not just making you more vulnerable, your 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 presence more tenuous, but it's actually changing you from being classified as someone who's indigenous to someone who isn't. So, if you can dig into that a bit, um,
1: yes, I'll start with it's two really big questions, all right? Um, I'll start with the re- distinction between residence and citizenship. So. Uh, what is called 48 Palestinian, Palestinian citizens of Israel, they hold Israeli citizenship, um, which has been granted to them uh, under the citizenship law of 1952. And I wanna come back to that, but maybe we can do that a bit later because I think it really connects to the question uh, um, of indigeneity and of the fragility uh, of their citizenship. In 1967, with the occupation of, of more Palestinian and Arab territories, Israel extended Palestinians in East Jerusalem, residence, not citizenship. And to be fair, also Palestinians in East Jerusalem didn't want Israeli citizenship as they saw it as the normalization and legitimization of of the occupation of Jerusalem.
0: And if I could just jump in there for a second, because this gets raised in Washington all the time, this argument like they can apply if they want. And Denny Seideman has always said, you know, they have the right to apply. We have the right to say no. They don't apply. And when we do, we say no. And the data backs up the argument that very, very few apply for citizenship. And of the ones who apply, very few are granted it. So go ahead. Sorry.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is really a key point. Because if we wanna understand the ramifications of this decision, we need to look at East Jerusalem because the path that they are taking is towards the East Jerusalem model. Uh, And we see that very clearly. Now, what we see in East Jerusalem is that uh, uh, East Jerusalemites are granted permanent residency. There There is nothing permanent about their residency they live in a state of constant fear and anxiety that their citizenship is going to be revoked and revo- when their is- because revoking their residency means that they are no longer allowed to live in jerusalem that they are expelled from jerusalem they are no longer allowed to enter Jerusalem, they find themselves in often the West Bank, right? So this is how Israel is pushing away residents. Now, residents can be revoked by the discretion of the minister of interior. Think about how extreme uh, uh, that is. So if your center of life is not East Jerusalem, then you can be revoked. Uh, you can be a. Uh, uh, um, your residence can be stripped away. Your center of life as defined by the Minister of Interior. Like, as defined I don't by believe the that you spend America. most
0: of your time in Jerusalem. I think you're mainly in the West Bank. That's
1: Exactly. You went to study overseas and you stayed there for more, I can't remember exactly, five years or seven years. Your citizen, your residence is being taken away because Jerusalem is no longer your center of life. Uh, you've been accused of, uh, uh, indicted or convicted of a terrorism act because this counterterrorism has been applied in Jerusalem. That kind of legal path in Jerusalem long before in forty-eight. Uh, um, then your citizen, your residence, sorry, can be stripped. And, and it also applies it to passing on, resident,
0: also in terms of passing on residency to children.
1: Exactly. And this is the way Israel has been carrying this uh, ongoing ethnic cleansing in, uh, in East Jerusalem of Palestinians. Um, Human Rights Watch speaks, but these are data from several years ago, right, of Fifteen thousand uh, Palestinians who lost their resident status since 1967. My estimation is that the number is much higher than it is recorded. Uh, every Palestinian uh, uh, knows several people from East Jerusalem whose citizenship has been, uh, 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 you know, revoked for numerous reasons. So Palestinians. Um, 48 Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship know all too well what this residence uh, status may mean. It means that it makes them conditional. Their their presence in their homeland is conditional and they can be also expelled. And we can see uh, uh, the same uh, uh, dynamics operating where they're expelled to the West Bank or to Gaza, Uh, um, uh, if they were convicted of a terrorist act, uh, why can their residence be revoked just as it is revoked on the same grounds by East Jerusalem Palestinians? So we are seeing what the ramifications are. It's not just stripping the citizenship away. It is um, expulsion that could be the result of this uh, of this measure.
0: So um, I'm sorry, there's a siren going on in the background here. If People are hearing that. That's the joy of Washington, D.C. So going back, you mentioned the case of the Bedouin, the denationalization or denaturalization of of a large number of Bedouin citizens, nobody noticed. But there's other things. I mean, this decision of the Supreme Court and the sense that it is part of a generalized mood of trying to um, to challenge the status of of Palestinians in Israel, there, there's other things, and and I'm wondering if you can talk about some of these other policies or actions that are, or even narratives in the public discourse. I'm thinking about some of the right wing politicians that that bolster the view that it is it is a very is very reasonable to believe Israel is going to use this decision to try to denaturalize and expel Palestinians. Can you talk about some of the other things that have been happening?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is why I was talking about this particular moment in that po- political, uh, and the political the culture of Israeli politics and the political culture in Israel at the moment. It's not coincidence that this ruling comes now. It's not a coincidence that the nation state law comes now. It's not coincidence that the Israeli Supreme Court uh, is legitimizing uh, uh, these acts. Um, there has been public opinion polls among Israeli citizens for you know uh, uh, in the last two decades, decades a steady increase uh, of support for the population exchange or the uh, population exchange meaning transferring the little triangle uh, area and the villages there um, populated lands uh,
0: were actually part of the Trump plan. They were included exactly. in the exactly.
1: Exactly, which would mean stripping 300,000 Palestinians of their citizenship uh, and they'd be relegated to you know, occupied uh, uh, citizens in practice, um, living under military occupation. Um, so we're seeing a steady uh, uh, um, support in public polls, Uh, of Israeli citizens wanting, Israeli Jewish citizens wanting to see the encouragement of Palestinian citizens uh, uh, to leave. We're talking about expulsion. Uh, And uh, the rates are high. They are between 50 and 70 percent, depending on the poll. The fact that we have polls asking these questions in itself is a testament of where we are politically when it comes to how Israel is functioning and how it is treating Palestinians who hold citizenship in the territories it controls. I'm trying to think of an equivalent situation. I'm living here in Australia. Uh, um, I mean, there are cases about whether... uh, um, the state can expel indigenous uh, uh, people who don't have citizenship, for example. There have been a couple of cases of these kinds. But I'm trying to think of any state, Australia, the United States, of doing public polls, asking the majority population whether they support the expulsion of native indigenous people. States are pursuing uh, a very, very discriminatory and very oppressive and colonial domination and all of that. But the fact that this is on the agenda, that we're talking about it, that we're asking it, that it's part of the political discourse also of the Trump administration. uh, It it says volumes about how dangerous uh, this ruling is.
0: Yeah. And and I would add, I mean, it's 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 people who are in government. I mean, the the idea of loyalty oaths, which was articulated by very senior people in the last government, the government before that. This is this has almost become like, you know, sure, we talk about it. The um, in your article, you actually quote um, one of the far right wing uh, Israeli politicians who was the transportation minister, um, Bezalel Smotrik. And I'm gonna quote your article, quoting him. He said, quote, we are the landlords of this land. The land has belonged to the Jewish people for thousands of years. God promised us all of the land of Israel, a promise he kept. We've just been the most hospitable people in the world since the days of Abraham. So you, that's the Arabs are still here at least for now. <laughs> and that's a direct quote. So looking at that quote, and I, I wanna ask you one last question cause I'm taking way too much of your time. I want to zoom out and this really, I think, references some of your other writing besides the article from this week. I want to ask you a final question here. I want you to talk about Israeli citizenship, the construct itself and and what it does and doesn't mean for Palestinians. Um, And and by the way, I live in the United States. I mean, I'm sure it's the same in Australia. Defenders of Israel constantly reference, you know, Palestinians who have citizenship and this proves healthy democracy and equal rights and rule of law, blah, 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 blah. In, in in another in one of the other articles you wrote from, I think 2019 or 2020, you you wrote, quote, the inferiority of 48 Palestinian reigned in and inherent to Israel's citizenship regime from its outset. Even though Israel has awarded suffrage rights and later citizenship to some of the Palestinians who remained in territories it controlled after its establishment, the Israeli state never considered Palestinians as indigenous to the space or as natural subjects of rights. So final question here. It's a long one. Can you talk more about what it means for citizenship to exist? Not as a right, which is how we all think about it. I think about it as an American as a right, but as a revocable gesture and not as a reliable intrinsic attribute conferring stability, confidence, and security, right? I've got my passport, no matter what happens, I've got my passport. But as a mutable status defined at its core by acceptance by the people, of inequality, vulnerability, and ever-increasing conditionality? Because I think that's really at the core of everything you're talking about. So for as long as you want to talk for the rest of this podcast, this is your, you have the floor.
1: <laughs> I think this is such an important question. Um, and this is what kind of led me to go in my academic work and to check how the Israeli Uh, a citizenship regime has been constructed and the ways in which Palestinian citizenship or the citizenship of Palestinians uh, has been constructed within this uh, regime. And that took me back to 1948 to 1952 and uh, through to 1952 when the law of return and the citizenship law were, uh, were enacted. And um, I was trying to see uh, what I can learn from the discussions, what could be learned from the discussions in the cabinet, um, in the Knesset uh, about that infrastructure. And I want to quote now. You quote uh, Smutrich, which you know many see. Oh, he's not representative of Israel, right? Because he is such an extreme and you know extreme right wing, etc. Even for Bennett, he's too extreme, right? This is kind of the discourse that you hear. But now I want to quote Ben Gurion, right? And that is from the discussions about uh, 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 the legislation of the citizenship law. And I'm quoting. He's saying there needs to be an to be a naturalization law, but not for the Jews. A Jew who comes to settle in the country is automatically a citizen. He is granted the right to be a citizen in advance. I differentiate here, not in the laws, but in the rights towards this country. The others are granted the right to be here only by an act of benevolence, by chesed, but not the Jew, he is entitled This is my basic assumption. This is how Israel ended up with two laws, with the citizenship law, and this is something that Shira Robinson shows very clearly, and I follow her on that, the citizenship law, and the law of return. Because when they tried to legislate a universal citizenship law in Israel, They realized that they can't have a a universal citizenship law, but also discriminate between Palestinians and Jews in the access to citizenship. So they legislated the law of return, and then which governs the right of Jews and sees them as the Indigenous people of the land who have the automatic, semi-birthright, almost birthright citizenship to the land, and between Palestinians, whose citizenship is seen as an act of gesture, Palestinians who were born there. Sorry, who were Palestinians Palestinians were born there. there. So I, as
0: a Jew born in you know United States, I have birthright citizenship, and a Palestinian. Born in Jerusalem has residency, which is easily revocable. Sorry, go ahead. Didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: And has even if they have a citizenship, they have citizenship by naturalization, not not as a birthright uh, uh, citizenship. Right? My grandparents received it by naturalization. Um, and so naturalization
0: is the idea that it's been acquired as a, as, as it's, it's a benevolent thing that you've acquired, not something that is intrinsically, um, something you possess.
1: Precisely. So we see that conditionality already enshrined in the ways in which uh, 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 citizenship has been constructed in Israel. And just maybe I'll finish with that. When uh, Ben-Gurion, when they were deliberating whether to have a citizenship law, Ben-Gurion really opposed the idea that there needs to be a citizenship law in Israel. He said, we already treat Jews as citizens. We don't need really. uh, This is not in question. But for him, what he wanted, and maybe I'll I'll finish with that, um, um, he didn't understand why uh, his cabinet is rushing to legislate a citizenship law uh, when it could constrain them in the future. Said they already have the residence. We're already giving them all the rights as if they are citizens. So what he says, and that exchange was, was with uh, um, the minister, David Ramez, he says, when you have a country in a stable condition, then the question of citizenship is a simple one. But here you are asking to make decisions decision about matters that are not we are not interested in finalizing. And then Remez answers, following this logic, let's assume that the question of borders and Arab refugees have been settled. The thirty years af- But 30 years afterwards, we occupy an additional territory. What should we do then? And ben Garion answers, in that case, the citizenship law will wait for another 30 years. We are in an unstable and changing situation. So why should we get ourselves into the trouble of resolving this matter? I don't understand the urgency. He lost that battle, right? There is a citizenship law. And that citizenship law has been constraining Israel with regard to expulsion of Palestinian citizens, but his vision has been triumphant when we look at the West Bank, when we look at Gaza, when we look at Jerusalem, when we look, this is what is being applied. And what we're seeing with the attempt of revoking citizenship is going back to what Ben Gurion said, why constrain ourselves? If you don't want to be constrained, you have to find a way first to revoke citizenship. And this is what we have now.
0: Yeah, and I I really appreciate you having this conversation. I think you said something earlier, which was very powerful, which is you don't need to have the dramatic visual of putting people on buses and driving them out of town it's possible to engage in, in, in expulsion without that dramatic visual. The problem is that when you do it via bureaucratics like this, maybe people just miss it until it's too late and they don't pay attention. So I think it's really um, critical to draw attention to it. And I'm, I'm grateful for the work that you do and I'm so grateful for you spending so much time with us today. Um, we're I was gonna say we should cut it short, but we've run way over because <laughs> I selfishly wanted to keep talking to you. Um, So, Lena, thank you so much for joining us today. For our audience, thanks for listening and watching. I apologize for running over, but I think it was absolutely worth it. And if you don't, you're wrong. Listen more carefully, it is worth it. Um, Don't forget to follow Lena on Twitter at Lana underscore Tatour and check out the website when I post the podcast. There'll be lots of links with that. And finally, as always, I remind you, subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do that on iTunes, SoundCloud or Spotify. That way you won't miss any of the fantastic content that we're producing every week. And with that, we're going to end here. I'm Lara Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you for having me.